those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have come not only to be born, but to live, to die, to be raised, and to receive from your Father at his right hand all power and authority and glory and dominion and a kingdom that will never end. And thank you for this passage, this word of hope for this group of people gathered here this morning, myself included. Would you grant your spirit so that we might understand and so that we might be comforted? We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. This is uh, the season of Advent, the season in which we focus on the coming of Jesus, the Savior of the world. So you may be wondering why 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Uh, how come we're not reading Matthew or Luke or, or something like that? Let me give you three reasons. I've been asked to preach this sermon. And I've been asked to preach this sermon from this text by folks who have been with me and with members of our congregation at memorial services for those who have died. And this is, as I said recently at George Oliver's memorial service, this text has become my go-to text. And I've actually been asked to preach from that text. And so that's the first reason. The second is this. The advent of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, is not a standalone event. It is not a standalone event. It is not an isolated event. It is connected in both directions in history from the event itself. It is connected to the whole of the Old Testament, and the whole of the Old Testament prepares us for this event, for the coming of this child. Beginning in Genesis 3.15, it's very clear that a seed from the woman, the seed of faith, the line of faith, the line of belief, a particular descendant would come forth to crush the head of the serpent and eradicate evil from the realm of God. It is God's world. It is God's cosmos. It is God's realm. He owns it. It belongs to him. And after sin in the fall came, and sin and death were intruded into the whole of life, God resolved from that point forward that he would do something about it. And so the whole of the Old Testament leads us 
to the promise to Mary and the eventual birth of Jesus, Isaiah 7:14, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, he will be called Emmanuel. Isaiah 9:6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. His birth leads to other things then. His birth leads, as I said two weeks ago, his birth leads to the planting of his kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of the world. That was the word that was given to Mary. The Lord God shall give to him, to this child who would be conceived in her womb, supernaturally, by the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit, this child would receive from the Lord God the throne of his father David. And this child would reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there would be no end. When Jesus was conceived and subsequently born and grew to adulthood in that sequence of events, and then by his commissioning at his baptism for ministry, the kingdom of King Jesus was being planted in the midst of the kingdoms of the world. And then we looked last week at Revelation chapter 12 in this dramatic portrayal of the attempt of the dragon to devour the child, but the child is taken up to the throne. The child is taken up to the throne where he fulfills the prophecy of Daniel 7. He is given power and he is given authority and he is given dominion. He is given this promised kingdom that will never end. It's what we said last week, you see, or two weeks ago, when, when Jesus comes into the world, the kingdom of God erupts, I-R-R-U-P-T-S, not erupts, explodes out, but the kingdom of God explodes in to the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And that kingdom that erupts in the life of Jesus, the birth, the life, and then the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of Father, where, the Father where He is clothed with glory. That kingdom which first erupted into the midst of the world is by the power of the Holy Spirit being extended. The kingdom has been planted. The kingdom is being extended, enlarged this very day among the nations of the world. Those are the things we've looked at. Thus far, the kingdom planted, the kingdom extended because of the ascension of Christ, and that leads to this passage, one of many which could be pointed to, but this passage paints for us a picture of the kingdom which has been planted and which is being extended, being brought to its consummate end and glory. It's a passage that tells us about the return of the king, the advent again, the coming of Jesus to complete what he started. And what is it that needs to be finished? What is it that needs to be completed? Well, I'm one thing that needs to be finished and completed. I can tell you that. But over and above what God has yet to do in my life to finish what he has started in my life, which he says in Philippians 1.6, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Above that, 
work which He's doing in me, which He's doing in you. There is another work which Jesus has yet fully to finish and complete, and that is the final destruction of the serpent and the defeat of death, the final demolition of the one enemy that you most fear. The enemy death. That's why we're preaching from this passage. Because this passage points us in the direction of what Jesus has yet to do. Annihilate forever the enemy that haunts you every day. And that enemy is death. And that's the third reason for wanting to talk about this. I've been asked to do it. It flows out of what we've done the first two weeks, the kingdom planted, the kingdom being extended, the kingdom being brought to its consummate and glorious conclusion, at which time, number three, your last and greatest enemy will be destroyed. I'm reading a book. I'm reading 40 books, but I started a new book. It's a book called A Brief History of Thought by a Frenchman named Luc Ferry. And in it, he suggests that all philosophy and all philosophical systems exist to solve the riddle of death. Human beings, he suggests, are distinguished from all other creatures, not by the fact of death, but other human be- all human beings are distinguished by this fact. They know that they will die. And they know that their loved ones will die. And that knowledge haunts them every day of their lives. Samuel Beckett, human beings are, quote, bored, born astride a grave. The light gleams for an instant, then it is night once more. That's not the gospel. The gospel is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. I want you to think with me about this passage in light of what we've suggested. Kingdom planted, kingdom extended, kingdom coming to a glorious conclusion, being fully consummated. That in that event of that glorious consummation, this last great enemy will be destroyed. I want you to think with me about this passage in light of those things. Think first about these Thessalonian Christians, these people who were receiving this letter. Who are they? Who are they? What I, what I love to remind us of is that they are real people living at a real place in real time. They're not part of some mythical history. They are real human beings struggling with, leaning against, laboring under the same kinds of struggles and problems and difficulties and doubts and fears that you labor against and struggle with. In their particular case, they live in this city of Thessalonica, a city of about 100,000 people, capital city of the province of Macedonia, a port city along the Ignatian Way, an east-west route that connected Rome to Asia Minor. And so it was a commercial center. It was also along north-south routes connecting what is eastern Europe to the Peloponnesus in the south. 
But more importantly, these are people who had received the gospel. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, these first few verses, this first paragraph, beginning at verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with conviction. And verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. You hear the description of what has happened with these folks? The gospel has come to Thessalonica. They've heard it, they've received it, and they've received it in the midst of much persecution. You can read the book of Acts. You can read chapters 16, 17, 18, 19. You can see in Paul's second, I think, missionary journey. Maybe it's his third. I lose track. The places that he visited, one of which was Thessalonica, and he was run out of town. He was hounded out of town. And he left Thessalonica and went to Berea, this other place where the people were more noble than the citizens of Thessalonica. And they considered everything that Paul had to say. And they considered it in light of the teaching of the scriptures. Berea was a great place to be. Thessalonica, not so much. Not so much. And what Paul experienced, these folks had experienced. But even beyond that, receiving the gospel in the midst of opposition, their faithfulness to the gospel had sounded forth in the midst of that affliction. Not just in their immediate region, but well beyond their immediate region. Don't trace this theme in the scriptures. It'll be unsettling for you. The church seems to be the strongest when it is the most vigorously opposed. The church seems to be the strongest when it is most vigorously opposed. A friend of mine who has met with pastors from China was in a meeting several years ago, came back from that meeting, preached at a missions conference for us in Orlando, and said the, the Chinese church asked us to pray for two things. Don't pray that persecution will end. And pray that God will raise up a million missionaries from the church in China to go to the Muslim world because you in the West can't. Don't trace this theme through the Scriptures. It'll be unsettling. The church seems to be the strongest, the most vigorous, the most powerful, if you will, when it is the most vigorously opposed. They'd come to Christ They'd maintain faithfulness in the midst of opposition. But somehow they'd become unsettled. They'd become unsettled. And it seems that what unsettled them was death. Death of friends. Death of family members. Imagine having received the gospel. Imagine, quite likely, having heard in the preaching of the gospel, in the teaching of the gospel, from the lips of Jesus, not they didn't hear it from the lips of Jesus, but they would have heard these words which came originally from the lips of Jesus and very likely could have been communicated to them by Paul. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. 
And even if he die, yet will he live forever? I'm the resurrection and the life. I mean, what does the gospel mean? It means life. And here the gospel has come, but what has happened since the gospel has come? Loved ones have died. Loved ones have died. And it was unsettling to these Thessalonians. And so Paul writes these verses, these six very, very precious verses to comfort them, to encourage them. And notice what he says in verse 13. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are, who are asleep so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The first thing he says, the first thing he acknowledges in effect is, I get your grief. I get that you grieve. Folks, death, this is one of the things that I said recently at George's memorial service. said it at Vicki Kennedy's memorial service. I'll say it at your memorial service when I do yours, if I'm still alive and here to do it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We are not supposed to die. When people die, they grieve. We're admonished in the Scriptures to enter into their grief, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. But you see what Paul is saying? We do it differently. We don't do it as those who have no hope. We do it. Keep in mind, keep in mind that Jesus is our example in this respect. Go to John chapter 11. Read the whole of the story of the death of Lazarus. And read these incredibly stunning and striking verses at the beginning of the chapter when Lazarus is sick and friends of Mary and Martha are sent by Mary and Martha to go find Jesus. And when the friends come and they find Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Look, if this doesn't stop you in your tracks, you're not reading. When Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And you ask, what kind of friend is that? What kind of friend is that? A friend who has power to do something for his friend, and when he learns that his friend is sick, nigh unto death sick, He stays where he is. Here's why Jesus stayed where he was. And I mean this with all seriousness. Jesus knew what he was going to do. And because he knew what he was going to do, he stayed where he was two more days to ensure that Lazarus was certifiably dead that there would be no doubt in anyone's mind that he had expired, was prepared for burial, was buried, and in the tomb. And then he came. 
And when he came, he came knowing full well what he was going to do. He knew that he was the resurrection and the life. And he knew that it was far more important for Mary and Martha and all of those who were there, as well as for us, for him to be able to demonstrate and prove and show that he is, in fact, the resurrection and the life. And that anyone like Lazarus, who entrusted himself to Jesus, the resurrection and the life, would himself overcome death, would himself know everlasting life. Jesus permitted Lazarus' death so that he could demonstrate his power over death. But notice, knowing full well what he was going to do, knowing full well that he had power and authority to do it, he stood at the grave of his friend and he wept. He grieved. And the word in the text, some of you may know this, the word in the text, not, it does not describe, there are other words for this, it does not describe the sort of quiet sobbing, it describes these deep, chest, gut-wrenching, heaving sobs. Jesus wept at the death of his friend. He grieved because he lost his friend and his friends had lost their brother. And he grieved because of the unbelief he saw. And he grieved because death reigns. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Paul says we grieve differently. Jesus, grieving deeply, grieved differently. Why did he grieve differently? Because he knew he was the resurrection and the life. He knew that he had power to overcome what had happened to Lazarus. But still, he grieved. So Paul says we don't grieve as those who have no hope. The Thessalonians, this is who they are as much as anything. Having received the gospel, they are those who are unsettled by the specter of death. And the apostle acknowledges the propriety of their grief. And yet he says we grieve differently. And why is it that we can grieve differently? What is it that happens at death? This is the second question. What is it that happens at death? Paul uses three times in this passage the word sleep, asleep. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep so that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Then verse 15, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What is he referring to? Well, it seems very clear that what Jesus is referring to in this passage, or what Paul is referring to in this passage is the body. He's referring to the bodies of those who have died. See, at the creation, you were created body and soul. God somehow wonderfully, you can read Genesis 2, took dust, dirt 
formed and fashioned it into the man and then animated that dust and dirt, breathed into him the breath of life so that he became a living soul, a body soul. That is what a human being is. A human being is body and soul. We are Christians, my friends. We are not Platonists. We are not Greeks. We believe that the material order is good, having been fashioned by God. And at the apex of that good material order, through all of the days of the creation, God says it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And at the apex of the material order, at the apex of the creation, are the man and the woman created body and soul and declared very good. We are Christians here. Death is not an escape from the body. Not according to Christian theology. Not according to biblical theology. I've said this to you before. I think. Maybe it's been in those memorial services. But when I do funeral services, several times in the course of my ministry, I've heard people pass by the casket with the body of the deceased in the casket. I've heard people say, that is not him. That is not her. And on one particular occasion when I was with the family before the casket was taken out into the place of worship where the service would begin, I was standing there with the deceased and I looked at him and I said, No, this is you. This is you, Jim. And what has happened to you is that your body, because of sin and because of the curse that plagues the whole of creation, your body is now in repose, is asleep, and will decay. And what happens at death is what I refer to as the great divorce. The divorce of things which God married in the beginning. The divorce of things which were meant never to be separated, body and soul. The divorce, the tearing, the ripping of body and soul. Body sleeps and is inanimate because this disunion has occurred. The animating principle that enlivens the material and the physical has been torn from the physical. And it seems very clear to me from the Scriptures themselves, that at the time of that great divorce, while the body is left behind, the soul returns to God who gave it. That's why Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1, as he writes to the Philippians and tells them that his departure may be near and tells them that he's, that he's torn, he's torn about this. What if I do die? This is a paraphrase. What if I do die? Well, that is much better for me, though it's not better for you. And so I'm torn. I'm torn between staying on in the flesh, which will mean more fruitful ministry among you and for you, and departing to be with Christ, for that is far better. To depart and be with Christ is far better. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Luke 23, 
verse 42. And if you talk to someone who is a Seventh-day Adventist about this, they'll say, well, you know, there were no punctuation marks in those days. And, and so the church really maybe hasn't been right in the way that it interprets what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus responds and says, I tell you, and that's where we put the comma. I tell you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't put the comma after today. I tell you today that someplace off in the future you will be with me in paradise. But I tell you, comma, today, after you've expired, after we have expired, you will be with me in paradise. Yes, the great divorce will occur. Yes, your soul will be separated from your body. But you will be with me in the presence of my Father. In Hebrews 12:23, the author of the letter to the Hebrews is articulating all of the glorious blessings, the blessings that supersede and surpass any blessings that believers had experienced before the ascension of Christ, before His rule and reign at the right hand of the Father. He says, you've come not to an earthly Zion, you've come to the heavenly Zion. You've come to the blood of the everlasting covenant and you've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. There is this assembly. In the presence of the Father and the Son, the souls of my brothers and sisters and your brothers and sisters in Christ who have departed and are in the presence of Jesus, knowing a joy that the joys of this world do not even begin to touch. The souls of just men made perfect. What happens at death? Body and soul are separated from one another. The body sleeps. The body lies in repose. The soul proceeds to the presence of Christ to know a joy, a blessedness, a peace, a contentment, a delight that surpasses our abilities to comprehend. But friends... That is not the end of the story. Get this right. Listen to lots of gospel hymns. I love gospel hymns. I love Appalachian folk music. Stuff written by people who struggled and suffered in the 18th and 19th and into the 20th centuries and talked about their homeland and crossing over the Jordan. But so much of that wonderful gospel music seems to suggest to the mind that the intermediate state is the eternal state. That just getting out of this mess is the end and greatest hope of the gospel. There's one hymn in your hymnal that stands over against the glorious, wonderful music I'm happy to sing, gospel music. 
And it's in number 358. And I want to read verses 4 and 5. The golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise the blessed. Sweet is the calm of paradise the blessed. So sweet, so calm, so ironic. From the Greek word for peace. So sweet and calm is that rest that it becomes true rest for the warriors who've departed and gone ahead. But you notice there are two more verses after verse 4. But lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant, rise in bright array. And the proof text, my friends, is 1 Thessalonians 4. There breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on His way. Alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl, streams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Paul goes on to tell us in verse 16 that the Lord Himself will descend. He will come from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. The trumpets announced announced the impending judgment of God. We read from Isaiah 35 that your God will come. He will come with recompense in His hands. He will come with vengeance in His hands. What will He do? Crush you? No. He will crush your enemies. And trumpet sounds and the voice of the archangel will announce it. And Christ, the glorious King, will descend. And as he descends, Paul tells us the dead in Christ will rise first. First. I don't know how this happens. People ask me about cremation. Maybe you wonder about cremation. My counsel is, And I don't say this lightly because I respect the body and I want us to respect the body. But there is a sense in which all cremation does is accelerate a process that has been going on since Genesis 5-5 when Adam died. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. I don't know how this happens, folks. Because bodies decay. They return to the dust. How powerful is the power of the risen, ascended, and resurrected Christ? So powerful that by His single command, all of those who have trusted Him in life will find their bodies being reconstituted, reformed, restored, 
and remarried to their departed souls. When Christ returns, He returns surrounded by the spirits of just men made perfect. And by His command, He summons their bodies out of the ground and He transforms them so that they are never subject to death again. And He acts as the minister of the Gospel in a wedding and He restores those bodies to their souls perfected to live in the new heaven and the new earth where there is no death and there are no tears and there is no crying and where He fully and finally crushes death under His feet. By the way, and I'll close with this, you're not going to be stuck up in midair for all eternity. The emphasis in the passage is not upon going up into the clouds. The emphasis in the passage is this, and so we will ever be with the Lord. The bride with His groom, the king with His kingdom. And the commentators will tell you, particularly N.T. Wright, whose insight into this passage I love, will tell you that this passage describes a returning, conquering king who when he returns, whose return is announced with trumpets and the people of his capital city stream out of his capital city to greet him as he approaches and as he returns to his city, they come with him back to the capital city to enjoy the spoils of his victory forever and ever and ever. We're not stuck up in the clouds, folks. The angels can do that if they like. We're coming back to the capital city, the new heaven, the new earth, to enjoy the spoils of the victory of King Jesus for all eternity. Singing, dancing, walking together, the highway of holiness described in Isaiah 35, surrounded by a wilderness that now explodes with life. Where the crocus bloom forever. Where there are streams in the deserts. Where there are pools to be refreshed. And where no nasty beast ever threatens anybody ever again. On Christmas Day, as you contemplate, and I trust you will, as you contemplate the birth of Jesus, remember where this birth is headed. It is headed in the direction of the final consummation of all things in Jesus Christ, the final banishing of all suffering, the crushing of death, under the feet of King Jesus. And so, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, please, please come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We know that each of us has certain aspirations and certain desires and certain things we'd like to see, but deep in our souls, we are haunted by the specter of death and we pray for your return that it might be crushed under your feet forever and ever. Until you do, would you, Lord Jesus, comfort us with the prospect of your glorious return. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.